can turn to Romans chapter 4, and I'll read the first eight verses. Romans 4, 1 to 8. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for your word. We know, Lord, that your word stands true, that it is eternal, unchanging, and that it must be fulfilled because it is, it is the living word. It is your very word. And it cannot fail. It is the rock upon which we stand. The truth of what has been spoken to us. And so, Father, we pray that, that in accord with the nature of your living, powerful word, that you'd speak into our lives and that we would receive and that you would act upon us, God, for your good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen. In these first three chapters of Romans we've been looking at, Paul's been laying out for us just a very simple summary statement that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all means all. But wedded into this was very, at the very beginning when he first started his argument back in Romans chapter 1 verse 17 where he says the, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. And that's, that is really the controlling theme that, that Paul is moving toward. And it's not just, as we'll see later, not just the statement of how we come to faith in Christ and how we are saved, but that principle, the righteous shall live by faith, becomes the principle for all of the Christian life and not just the introduction into the Christian life. So having established that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it now just begs the question, then what shall we do? How can we be saved? And Paul says there is nothing that we can do in our own strength. We have no merit. As Isaiah says, our righteousness is filthy rags. We are helpless. We were apart from God, the enemies of God, hostile to Him, by nature, children of wrath. And so there is nothing that we can do on our own benefit. But God in His mercy and grace gave His Son, who is the propitiation for our sins. That in Him, the wrath of God is satisfied, the justice of God is satisfied, and as we simply put our faith in Christ, God declares us righteous. Boy, these are just great truths. Great truths. I I, I think sometimes that you know, that, that it's just the, the privilege of preachers to be able to talk about these things, but it is not at all. This is the privilege of all who are in Christ to declare these things. Yesterday, Patsy and I were, were at Russ Hanley's mother's funeral, and Russ asked me to, to speak a little bit during that time, and he said, give them the gospel. And what a privilege. The first man who came up and spoke, former chiropractor who went into the ministry, never met him before, he lives down in Corpus, and, 
and I didn't know him from Adam. And I, and I just thought he's just a friend of the family. And he just stands up and he says, let me tell you, as one who lived a professional life, who did not know Christ, that there is life only in Christ. And it is simple as this. Confess your sin, put your faith in Christ, and you shall be saved. And I'm going, I don't even need to say anything. Amen. This is just wonderful. And then Russ Hanley got up and said the same thing and read from John chapter 3. He didn't even know that that's where I was going to speak from about Nicodemus. A religious man, a Pharisee, a man who prayed three times a day, fasted twice a week, tithed up to 20% of his income, had memorized the entire Old Testament, and he comes to Jesus and says, tell me how to receive eternal life. He knew he did not have the life of God. And so then I get to stand up and say, put your faith in Jesus. And it's just, it is a privilege that we all have to declare these things. As I looked out across that room and the doctors and the lawyers and the different professionals that were there, many of them at the end of their careers or in retirement, and they've been successes in this life. And it, again, it, it, the main thing is not the kind of money we've made, not the kind of houses that we've built for ourselves, the things that we've accumulated. The main thing, the only thing, is our standing before God. And the scripture says that the only way to have a right standing before God is through faith in Jesus Christ. It is the only way. These are essential things here. In the first few verses that I've just read, verses 1 through 8, it would seem that Paul is trying to establish that justification, righteousness before God, does not come on the basis of works. And if it were, then Abraham... Um, it would have, anybody would say, well, then maybe we have a chance. But nobody does. He's already established that. And so he says again, verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor or not reckoned as grace, but as what is due. But then again, another summary statement, verse 5, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Not by works, but by faith, that our faith is reckoned as righteousness. And the big question here is, who does that reckoning? Do you reckon me righteous if I put my faith in Christ? That's not what this is saying. Do I reckon myself righteous because I put my faith in Christ? It's not saying that. Does the church hierarchy reckon me as righteous because I put my faith in Christ? It's not saying that. God reckons you righteous. If you put your faith in Christ, and Christ alone for salvation, coming to Him with the empty hands of faith to say, God, I can only receive and I have no merit on my own, God reckons you righteous. Ten times, as I've already noted, ten times in this chapter, the word reckon is used. And in every instance, it is God who does the reckoning. Reckoning is a commercial term. It's the thing that you do whenever you write a check out and you, or somebody gives you a check and you take that check and you cash it, you and the bank are reckoning that there are funds behind that check. I wrote a check out one time to one of our guest speakers and I don't know where my head was when I wrote it out. But I, and, I, and, it, and it wouldn't have been but just for a few hundred dollars or something. And I wrote it out for $11,000. I have no idea what I was thinking. And I saw myself do it. I wrote it down. Didn't think anything. Just didn't even register. 
And I gave it to him. He gets all the way back to Phoenix, and he um, calls me up, and he says, Charlie, I want to thank you for that check that you gave me. And I go, oh, no problem. And he goes, but um, there might, might be a little problem. And he goes, uh, I don't know if you know this, but you run it out for $11,000. And I'm going, oh. you know, <laughs> help, yes, there, there's a problem. And, uh, and he's laughing, you know, and I'm all embarrassed. And he could have reckoned on it. He could have taken it to the bank and cashed it and said, thank you very much. But he didn't reckon on it. Thank you very much. He didn't reckon on it. Nathan, my oldest son's in college. And I, once in a while, I'll get on the, on the, on the bank um, um, website, and I'll check his account, see how he's doing. And if things are getting a little low, once in a while, I'll, I'll drop a little money into his account. And, and he'll say, man, Dad, I, I, I looked at my account, and thanks. He reckons on the money that's there. One time again, I, you know, uh, I, I transferred funds into his account when I thought I was transferring them into our, in our, to our checking account because the numbers are very much the same. And, um, and I couldn't understand why I was getting all these overdraft protection things from the, from, the, from the bank. And so then Nathan calls me and he goes, Dad, man, I don't know if you, yeah, thanks for that thousand bucks you put in my, in my and I go, help, no, it's sorry. And he goes, well, I thought there was a mistake and he hadn't, he hadn't spent it all. But that's the way it works. It's a, it's a reckoning, it's, a, it's, we're, it's there, and you take it to the bank. You stand on it. And when God says it, we can say, it has to be true. Now, I've had an experience recently again, I've had them a few times in my life, where I've said something, and somebody just looks at me and says, I don't believe that. And they don't believe it, basically because it's me saying it. It's what it comes down to. That hurts. And I think about, why would they, why would they question me? And, it, and it's not just because of the statement itself, but as I explore it and talk to them about it, it's because of, of me. Well, that stings. It really does, because they're saying, basically, I don't trust you. And, and so when you make a statement like that, that is something I've never heard before, it's coming out of your mouth, I don't trust you. I'm not going to believe it. Well, all men are liars. I shouldn't take offense too much, though I do. It hurts. I don't want to be known that way. And I, and I would trust that, that it's not true. But even if it is true. The main thing, though, it really makes me, just in, in reflecting on this passage again, it's made me back up and say, you know, God, what am I saying about you? When you tell me in one chapter of Scripture ten times, God reckons my faith as righteousness. How many times does God need to say it? And I look at God and I go, has he ever told me anything that wasn't true? Has there ever been anything that God has said that wasn't true? Has his word ever failed? Ever been proven wrong? Has God ever wronged me? That I would question his character question his intent toward me? And I have to say, there is no basis for questioning God. None whatsoever. And God says, not the church says, not my friends say, not that I say, God says. God reckons faith in Jesus Christ to be righteousness. In the language of 2 Corinthians 5.21, God says, 
He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How righteous are we? The righteousness of God. God says so. God says so. How did that happen? By simply saying, Jesus, I am not righteous, but you are. I could never become righteous except that you do it. And I confess myself as a sinner, and I come before you with empty hands, and I ask you, God, to cleanse me of my sin, to forgive me, and to bestow upon me right standing with you. And God says, I'll go beyond just right standing. I will actually make you righteous, the very righteousness of God. Again, look at how, how he, he's, as it were, describing, almost defining righteousness in, in verse 7. Remember, at the end of verse 6, he says, the righteousness apart from works. God reckons righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. All of them. Whose sins have been covered. All of them. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. None of them. That's righteousness. We take it into account. We remind ourselves. We remind others. God says, it's done. It's forgotten. You will never stand before me as a guilty sinner. You will stand before me as the very righteousness of God itself. You will stand before me as a dear child of God. As right as Jesus is right. There is no condemnation. We have been forgiven. Our lawless deeds are forgiven. Our sins are covered. And God will not take our sin into account. You'll note in verse 7, it says sins, plural. And in verse 8, sin, singular. It's probably for a reason. Typically, when we see Paul do that, he speaks of sin, singular, as being the sin principle, the sin nature, the thing that makes me sin. And sins being the activity of sins, the particular things that I've done. All of it, God says, I will not consider it. It is no longer up for reckoning. The only thing I reckon on now is that you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. And on the basis of that, I reckon you righteous. He moves from there and it seems that he now brings up the the issue of circumcision. And really it's not so much about circumcision, it's about Jew versus Gentile. And can you truly, as a Gentile, speaking to the Jews, be righteous before God? And he says, absolutely. Verse 9, Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Great question. Faith, Abraham was declared righteous before he was ever circumcised. So in other words, it has nothing to do with Jewishness. 
How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised. So the circumcision was just simply a a proof in his flesh that he had already become righteous prior to being circumcised. A seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, past tense, while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them. Dave and Charlotte Mashburn's son wrote me a letter six months ago now. I just answered it this week. But I have an excuse. 27 questions. A lot of just good Bible theology questions took me a um, good part of this week to, to, to finally, you know, have the time to sit down and get it done. Eleven pages. And um, one of the questions that he had, very good question, he says, Why is it that Paul was preaching Christianity when Jesus was a Jew, all the prophets were Jews, the apostles were Jews, and everything came out of Jewish scriptures, then why were they preaching Christianity rather than Judaism? My response is, one, Paul wasn't preaching Christianity. He was preaching Christ. And we, have, we are not adherents to a religion. We are in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We never preach religion. We preach the necessity of faith in Christ in order to have a personal relationship with Him. Secondly, in the Old Testament, the Jews' mandate was not to make the nation, to make every nation Jewish. It was not to make every Gentile a Jew. Their mandate was to preach the one true God to the world so that the world would be filled with the glory of God. So that every nation would individually come to faith in Christ. It was never the mandate to make Jews of the whole world. But it was to make believers in God of the whole world. There is a huge difference. So even in the Old Testament, they weren't supposed to be preaching Judaism. They were supposed to be preaching a personal relationship with the one true God. That has never changed. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. The message has never changed. And so even in the Old Testament, they weren't preachers of a religion. They were supposed to be preachers of a personal relationship with God. Now they messed it up. And they began preachers of, became preachers of a religion, and they tried to proselyze people and make them Jews. But that was the point. They messed it up. And so this is why Paul so emphatically said, Jewish, I mean, sorry, Gentile Christians do not need to be circumcised. And so when Titus was traveling around with him, and he had Timothy circumcised because Timothy's mother was a Jew, but when it came to Titus, he says, no way is that man going to be circumcised. Because in that, if we do that, it's to preach Judaism. It's to say you must become a Jew. And that is a lie. It has never been the intent of God for the world to become Jewish. But for every nation of the face of the earth with their, with their distinctiveness and uniqueness to give glory to God. That has always been His intent. And that again is why Paul was so emphatic. That, that Christian Gentiles would not be circumcised, no matter what. Because it would be to communicate conversion to a religion, rather than personal faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm being strong on that, 
because this is a big thing today. And, it, and again, it, it, it's moving beyond Scripture. I really believe when we start saying that when you put your faith in Christ, you become a spiritual Jew. As Paul's going to argue here, you become a child of Abraham, a son of Abraham. In the same way that he was declared righteous, you were declared righteous. Your, Abraham's faith is your faith. But you are not a Jew. You are a nation, one of the many nations that Abraham is the father of. Look how he continues in this thought. Verse 13, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of, the fa- of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. This is where it gets interesting, verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith, that it might be in accordance with grace, in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but to also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. Not a father of Jews, not the father of one nation, but the father of many nations. God never intended for every person to become a Jew, but he did intend for Abraham to become the father of many nations through Jews and Gentiles who put their faith in Christ. That's his point. Back to verse 16. The main thing that I I was just emphasizing is is that all people, Old Testament, New Testament, have always been declared righteous on the same basis, and that is by faith. In what God has done. That has never changed. The Old Testament was not proclaiming a religion. The New Testament is not proclaiming a religion. Both Old and New Testaments have proclaimed personal relationship with God through faith. That by the grace of God, we are declared righteous. By the grace of God, we are saved. That being the case, verse 16, then we can know that the promise Because it is by grace, in accordance with grace, then it is certain. Absolutely certain. I've touched on that in previous messages. If my salvation in any way, in one iota, if it is dependent upon anything that I have done, infant baptism, church attendance, memorizing scripture, not cussing, whatever it is, If it is dependent in the least bit on what I do, persevering to the end, whatever it is, I can never be certain that I am saved. Never. But it is certain because it does not depend upon me at all. It is the work of God. And God works in simple response to faith. Lord Jesus, save me. And God says, I save you completely, thoroughly. Remember the word for redemption from last Sunday. It is a thorough, through and through redemption. And all we do is come to him and say, God, save me. And he does. On the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, bringing it down even more practical to Abraham. It's not... Justification is not by 
works. Justification is not by circumcision. Justification is not by law. Justification is simply by faith. In Abraham, Old Testament figure, this is why we again we say there's not two ways of being saved in the Bible. There's not an Old Testament way and a New Testament way. Salvation's always been the same. It is by the grace of God through faith. That has never changed. And so he points all the way back to Abraham and says, look how he was declared righteous. Yeah, I like this. This is good stuff. And he says, okay, God comes to Abraham with a promise, verse 17. A father of many nations have I made you. Really? (laughs) And then we read on. In the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Why Why is that in there? Verse 18. In order, in hope against hope, he believed in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, I love this, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. And he contemplated the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Abraham was 75 years old, and Sarah was 65. When God first came to Abraham and said, Sarah's going to have a baby. Amazing. Wouldn't you love to have been there? (laughs) They were way past the time of childbearing. In fact, Genesis says that Sarah was worn out, just worn out. She's 65, and she's already just worn out. And so he goes, sweetheart, God, God's told me something. What's that? Hey, you're going to have a baby. Right. Well, 10 years go by and there's no baby. But Sarah, you know, she's believed too. But she gets to think, well, maybe we're supposed to help God out. And so she offers her handmaid, Hagar, to Abraham, and Ishmael is the product. And the Bible describes it as flesh, a picture of flesh. Because whatever is not of faith, and again, faith does not involve my activity. Faith involves God's activity. Whatever comes from me, God says, is flesh. And whatever is not of God is sin. What is faith? You know, many ways it's been described. But basically, it is putting your trust in the activity of someone else. It's not you doing, it's someone else doing. Getting in a plane, getting in your car when you leave this morning. It it is you're trusting in the activity of someone else. That's what faith is. I'm not trusting myself, I'm trusting in God. When Sarah offered Hagar to, to Abraham, they were involved in the process in a way that God never intended. They were trying to help God. It became now God plus man. And God says, that's not the way I work. I don't help those who help themselves. It is only God. And God only. And that's why I came to them when they were 75 and 65 instead of 35 and 25. So that there'd be no explanation for it other than God. And after 10 years, they try to help God out, produce, produce Ishmael. And we're still living with the problems of that today. And then another 10 years go by. And finally, when Abraham is 99 and Sarah is 90, God comes again and says, by this time next year, 
she will be holding a baby. And this is where Abraham goes, okay, let's just take some inventory. Let's do some reckoning again. God's been doing some reckoning. I'm going to do some reckoning. And he looks at himself and he goes, this is a joke. This is not going to happen. And he looks at his dear wife and he says, it's hopeless. <laughs> and that's what it says. In hope against hope. It's hopeless. It is hopeless. But then, and this is, the, this is what the fear of God is about. The fear of God is, is just simply reckoning on God to be the greatest factor of life. The world is not going to teach you the fear of God. Because the world takes God out of the equation. But the Christian puts God in the equation and says the number one factor in this equation is there is a God who lives. And if God said it, the only question is, can he do it? And so Abraham looks and he says, I'm as good as dead. Thought comes to mind. God can raise the dead. And he looks at himself and he says, there is nothing in me and nothing in Sarah that could produce a child. Thought comes to mind. God brings into being that which does not exist. True, two true theological statements. God raises the dead, and God brings into being that which does not exist. So, if God is bigger than my problem, then I don't have a problem. That's what he comes to. If God is bigger than my problem, then what's my problem? And he reckoned on God. Now, it doesn't say that, but that's what he's doing. He counts, he considers God able. God is sufficient. He did not become weak in faith, verse 19. He thought, he contemplated, Christians need to think. And we need to think on what is true concerning God. And then it says, verse 20, he did not waver in unbelief. So faith did not grow weak, did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith. And with that, in that process of growing strong, simultaneous to it, giving glory to God. Now this is not claiming something so that it will become true. He was not doing that. He was reckoning on what God had already said. This is not trying to get God to do something that I want Him to do. This is trusting God to do what He said He would do. Totally different scenario. And in that process, giving glory to God. Thank you, God. Thank you. You've said it. You are able. There's not a problem. I trust you. I don't know how. I don't know when, but I know you are able. If you can raise the dead, if you can bring into being that which doesn't exist, you can make Sarah have a baby. We're looking forward to it. Thank you, God. It is standing on the truth of who God is and what God has said. Not growing weak, not wavering, but giving glory to God. Being fully assured, verse 21, that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Paul picks up on that same theme in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says, I am confident that God is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him. God is able to do what he has performed. God is able to do what he has promised. 
And what he has promised, he will also perform. Therefore, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, application to us. This isn't just about Abraham, Paul says. This is about us. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. I was in a conversation this week with a friend of mine, old friend from Bible college days, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, I guess, something like that. And just a dear friend, dear brother in the Lord. And, um, and, and as we were talking, and he teaches at a, at, a, at a Bible college that wants its students to really come to know Christ as their life. And I very much appreciate that, that focus there at the school. It's always been there at that school. But I've observed over the last number of years that what, that, that focus is now being described as one of several distinctives of that school. One of several distinctives. And that's troubled me. Because I remember, and I told my friend this on the phone, that when I was at that school, that the president of the school was trying to communicate that this focus is not simply one distinctive among several good distinctives. For example, missions, evangelism, teaching and preaching the word of God, prayer. All these things are good things. But he says, if we put this distinctive of Christ is the source of life on level with all of the others... And so we pursue Christ as the source of our life, and we pursue missions, and we pursue prayer, and we pursue evangelism. Then everything that you're pursuing, you pursue in the flesh. Because unless you've learned that the bedrock foundational thing of life is that God alone can live this life. God alone can save you. God alone can live this life through you. Then everything you do You do in the flesh. And it is not giving glory to God. And so you can have a church that is dedicated to giving half of its income to missions. It is a worthy distinctive. But if that's not coming out of a heart that understands there is nothing we can do for God. Our righteousness is filthy rags. There is nothing we can do to glorify Him except to receive from Him with empty hands. And then say, God, as we've received, so we give. You cannot live for him until you've learned to live from him. This is not just one distinctive among many. It is the foundational thing. And that's why Paul's spending so much time here in this chapter. Because everything he's going to say about sanctification in chapter 6, 7, and 8 is nothing more than the outflow of what he's saying here in chapter 4. We are declared righteous by God through simple faith. In Jesus Christ. That is the foundation. God's activity on our behalf. And we are made the very righteousness of God. That's how we're saved. And as Paul will describe, that's how we live. By God's activity. And we say, thank you God. I reckon it to be true because you have reckoned it to be true. We close us in prayer. God, we do thank you for what you reckon to be true. 
Our emotions, Lord, often betray us. Our own experience, Lord, just our choices, our attitudes, our, our sin betrays us, Lord. And says to us, screams at us, and our, even our, our friends and family will tell us the same, that there is no righteousness in us. Oh, God, that we would receive the truth, stand on the truth, reckon on what you have said and who you are, that you, the holy and righteous God, declare us righteous, the very righteousness of God, as we simply put our faith in Jesus and come to you, God, with the empty hands of faith that say we can only receive. And you say that you receive us fully, that you do not take our sin into account, that you cover our sins, and that you grant us forgiveness. We thank you, God. We know this is the case. We know, God, that every single time we approach you, you approach us with open arms. There's never hesitancy, reluctance on your part toward us, God. We know this in our experience. And we can come to you just crippled and messed up, full of guilt and shame, and you receive us eagerly, fully, immediately, because you have declared us righteous. I thank you, God, for your good work on our behalf. Nothing is more important, more significant than these things, God, and the truth of who you are, what you have done on our behalf. And all we can do is say thank you, And we want to give you the glory that every day of our lives, God, we'd reckon that you are a God who raises the dead and brings into being that which does not exist. And if you've said that it's true, then you will make it true. Thank you, God, that because of your faithfulness and your promise, these things are certain. In Jesus' name, amen.